Carl Cheesy Nelson was the first Elvis impersonator. 1954, he actually built up a little of a following on local radio by doing renditions of the king. And there are all different types of Elvis impersonators out there. You got the lookalikes, you got the soundalikes, and you got the rare combination of lookalike and soundalikes. You have professional Elvis impersonators. They're called ETAs. They're Elvis tribute artists. You have amateur Elvis impersonators who do birthday parties and bar mitzvahs. They want to go pro, but they're not quite ready yet. You have comedian Elvis impersonators, guys like Clownvis Presley. That's a real person. Uh, but here's the problem with an Elvis impersonator is they're not quite as good as the real thing. You have the real thing, then you have an Elvis impersonator. They're missing some physical trait or, or personality quality or, or some vocal distinction. They are a lesser version of Elvis. Now, here's the problem. In Christianity, we can worship a Jesus who is a lesser version of the real thing. They're not quite like Jesus. They may sound like Jesus. They may look like Jesus. But they're missing some personality trait or quality that makes Jesus Jesus. And we worship all sorts of types of these lesser Jesuses in uh, American Christianity today. We, we have the vending machine Jesus. It's the Jesus who, you know, you, you do your prayers or you say your prayers and you, you go to church and then you expect that Jesus to give you something back. You know, you put your quarter in. I want Jesus to give me something that I want. You have your, your uh, moral authority, Jesus. This Jesus kind of smacks your hand whenever you do something bad. He is there to correct you and let you know that you are wrong. You have life coach Jesus. This is a big Jesus in Castle Rock. Jesus wants you to live your best life now. He is here to help you live the most fulfilled, the most joyous of life. And that's Jesus' sole purpose in coming. You have enlightened Jesus. There's another very popular Jesus around the world. Jesus was spiritually enlightened, just like the Buddha, just like Gandhi. There's really no difference between him and those guys. He's not unique in that sense. He's just kind of special compared to the rest of us. And the problem with these Jesuses is they're less. They're not as good as the real thing. They're not worthy of our worship. And these Jesuses can't save us. They are imposters, impersonators of the real thing. In Colossians, Paul is writing a letter to a church that he deeply loves. This is the church that he has seen God growing in. He has seen their faith and their love for one another, the hope they have. And he has prayed for them to continue to grow because there's something happening in this church. Heresy has began to influence the people in this church. And so Paul writes this letter to the Colossians with that in mind, and devaluing Christ's supremacy, Christ's greatness, and the sufficiency of salvation through him was part of that heresy. Maybe Jesus isn't that great. Maybe Jesus isn't able to save you in the way that you think you need saving. Maybe Jesus isn't all-powerful. Maybe you need to look at these other spirits or these other things for wisdom and fulfillment and salvation. And so Paul wants the audience today to understand who saved them isn't a little knockoff Jesus. 
It's a big, authentic Jesus. And then he says, this is why seeing him in this way matters. So turn to Colossians 1. Have your Bibles out. Turn to Colossians 1. Uh, Please take notes. Please underline stuff. But in Colossians 1, starting in verse 15, many commentators, many scholars, academics think this is actually a hymn. Verses 15 through 20. Now, not the type of hymn that we think about. We think about hymns as kind of like old school songs that, you know, have real words, like weird words like Ebenezer, you know, raise my Ebenezer. I just think about lifting up an old guy. Uh, Not that kind of hymn. Um, Hymns were often used in the early church to remind Christians what they believed and to reinforce what they believed. And so they believe verses 15 and 20 are actually a a pre-scripture hymn. Because Paul's writing this scripture, he's using this hymn, and he may modify it a little bit, but it's here to reinforce and remind people who Jesus actually is. And so look at verse 15. Doug actually read through this passage before, and so we're going to kind of break it down verse by verse. There's two major sections of this hymn, then a response. You have Jesus' relationship to creation. You have Jesus' relationship to the church. And then you have, what should, our, what should our response be to those truths? And so look at verse 15. Look at verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. If we look back at Genesis, we are created in God's image. And we're given authority to rule over his creation. Well, Jesus isn't just made in the image of God. He is the image of God. And he has ultimate authority over his creation. The second person of the Trinity, he took on flesh and he now shows us what God is like, what his character is, what he desires, and he reveals to us his plan of redemption. Jesus isn't just some guy. He has eternally existed. We'll see that. And he has come to reveal who God is and what God desires. He is also the firstborn over all creation. If you look in verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now, how many of you have had a JW visit your front door? You guys know what I mean by JW, Jehovah's Witness? Anybody have a Jehovah's Witness come and visit? And you're like, oh, I'm cooking, and you slam the door real quick, and you just kind of go on. But Jehovah's Witnesses use this passage and others similar to it, and they twist it, to claim an essential truth. And here's what they claim, that Jesus was actually created. He was the firstborn. He was actually created by Jehovah, by God. So when they sing, they don't sing worship songs to Jesus. Jesus is a created being. He's a God of sorts, but he's actually a lesser God. And so obviously, if we look at Scripture, we see the divinity of Jesus uh, over and over again, but, but here in context, it's important to note that while firstborn can mean like, you know, they were born first, literally, chronologically, they were born first, it can also be used metaphorically to, to, to qualify somebody's rank or their prominence. And, and so here's what I mean. And, and so, in, uh, you know, God says of David, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of earth, even though David was the youngest of his brothers. 
So as the firstborn, the Jesus who has eternally existed, what, what Paul is saying here is he outranks all of creation. Jesus is preeminent. This is more about rank and status than chronological order. Jesus is uncreated, and we'll see that here in a second. And so as the firstborn, he is over all creation. Well, why? Why is he over all creation? Look at verse 16. We're going to underline some things here in verse 16 through 17. For by him, underlined by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created, underlined through him and for him, underlined for him. And then in verse 17, it says, and he is before all things, and here's what I want you to underline finally, and in him all things hold together. And so let's break this down. Jesus is Lord over creation, and here is why? By him, all things were created. What does that mean that by him, all things were created? Well, I think this is fleshed out in verses 16 through 17. You have through him, for him, and he sustains all things. All things are held together by Jesus. So through Christ, the universe came into being. Jesus is the means through whom God accomplishes the Father, his task of creation. So all creation came through Jesus. Jesus is the means by which the Father establishes creation. It also says creation is for him. Creation belongs to Jesus. And creation doesn't exist just to exist. It exists for him, namely for his glory. Creation is for him, for his glory. John Piper says, nothing, nothing in the universe exists for its own sake. Everything from the bottom of the oceans to the top of the mountains, from the smallest particle to the biggest star, everything that exists, exists to make the greatness of Christ more fully known, including you. You were created to make God's name fully known, to praise him and worship him. You belong to Jesus. And we should praise him with our entire being. And not just here on, on Sunday evenings, but, but a life of worship and praise. That is what creation is for. That is what you are for. And here's the craziest truth that I think. So we have everything was created through him. Everything was created for him. And then the last thing I had you underline was, and in him all things hold together. So the universe is held together by Jesus Christ, by the power of Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus Christ isn't creation, like this podium isn't Jesus. That's what some people teach, is that everything is God, the universe is God. God is separate from creation. Jesus is separate from creation, but he upholds creation. From the smallest of electron to, to suns and stars to the universe to gravity, all of that would fall into chaos without the sustaining power of Jesus Christ. And, and I look at these little babies in and, and church, and, and I just think, think about this in a more personal sense. Is every breath they take, every breath we take, every heartbeat is dependent on Jesus Christ. 
And it's because Jesus Christ is sustaining us. So every second you are in existence is a gift graced to you by Jesus Christ's sustaining power. So what is Paul trying to say through all this? You know, he's firstborn. He's the image of the invisible God. He is over creation. It was created through him, for him. He sustains everything. And here's kind of the first part of our big idea is that Jesus is Lord over his creation. Jesus is Lord over his creation. Part of the heresy influencing the Colossians church focused on things like spiritual beings and, and looking to them for fulfillment. And, you know, in chapter two, Paul calls them out for, for worshiping angels. And so what Paul is saying here is these entities that you give your attention to that you worship are mere creations. Jesus is the uncreated. He is the creator, the sustainer, and he is greater than those things. He is preeminent. I was driving down Plum Creek this week, kind of looking at, you know, just the trees and, and uh, just looking at nature and the clouds and, and thinking about my kids and the universe and, and just this idea that, Everything was created through him, for him, and he holds all of these things together, just kind of blew me away. And I was in awe. And I was actually doing the thing I was created to do. I was, I was worshiping him, and I didn't need a church to do that. But Jesus really deserves our praise. He really deserves our praise. And, and, and sometimes, you know, I question, you know, in here and out there, are we really praising Jesus? You know, in here, we were, we were laughing the other day, and I just say in here, I just mean general, in church as we worship God, not in central. Like, do we really praise Jesus? Do we really worship Jesus? And sometimes it feels like we're singing worship like we do, happy, like we sing happy birthday to people. Like, you ever, like, noticed, if you ever go to a birthday party, it's supposed to be the celebration, and when everybody, sings, when everybody sings happy birthday, there is no like facial expression of joy. We were at Bianca's birthday party and I was kind of just watching to see this and it, and it was just happy birthday to you. And it's just this kind of like funeral song that we sing, happy birthday to you. And uh, there's no joy in that song. It's just, we just do it to do it. And we worship the creator of the universe, the one who fills our, our lungs with breath, the one who gives us the capability to sing, the one who brought us into existence. And even out there, do we worship God? Like with our lives, with everything, do, do, do we live for our creator? Do we fulfill our purpose to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice continually to him, to worship him? I think that's just a an interesting challenge looking at this first part of the hymn. He's Lord over creation. He deserves every bit of our praise. But he's also Lord over his church. Look at verse 18. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn, there's that word again, from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Preeminent is just another word for number one so that he might be supreme, his supremacy. And so he is the head. This is a common metaphor for Jesus in Scripture. We are the body of Christ, the church is. He is the head. And the head gives direction to the body. It has power and authority over the body. 
Furthermore, the head sustains the body. Without the body, we're, without the head, we're, we're not going to be able to feed the body. And so for us, you know, our spiritual food, our nourishment, our source of life is the head, Jesus Christ. And he's also over the church because he is the church's originating cause. He's, he is called the, uh, the firstborn from the dead. Through his resurrection, he ensures that there's resurrection life for us. And, and this kind of has two ways to think about it, the already and the not yet. So when we put our faith in Jesus, we, we receive new life, resurrection life in the here and now. And we receive that because we're in Christ. We were once dead in our sins, but now we've been made alive through Christ. But part of that is in the future, one day, he will give us resurrection bodies. So if we've passed away, he will resurrect us. If we're here, we will be transformed and we will, give resurrect, we will get resurrection bodies and we will live with God, with Jesus forever and we will worship him and we will praise him. His resurrection is the first and he paves the way for us. And it's through his resurrection power that we receive resurrection life here and in the life to come. And so the outcome of him being the head, being the firstborn, is that in everything, he may have supremacy. Christ is number one in relation to his original creation and in relation to the new creation, the church. Look at verse 19. For in him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He has supremacy because he is God. In the, old God, in the Old Testament, God filled the temple, right? Jesus supplants the temple. And in Christ, everything that can be known about God, his wisdom, his spirit, his power, his will, everything that can be known and experienced with God is found in Christ Jesus. When we say in the fullness, uh, when we say for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. We're saying that he's the full embodiment of God. Look at verse 20. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of Christ. And so while everything was created through Christ, sin marred that creation. Our creation, our world, grumbles. It yearns for redemption. And Jesus is going to reconcile all things to himself. He will restore that creation. He will renew this earth. We don't think about that sometimes. Sometimes we think that, that we're just going to go live with, with God in the clouds and we're going to look like fat babies with harps and uh, halos and things. No, we're going to be given new resurrection bodies and he will restore everything that is broken on earth. And so if you think what you see when you hike is beautiful, it will be even more beautiful. And the new heaven and new earth, he's going to restore all things, including broken people, people who are far from him. The idea here is that all creation will be restored. Those who will oppose him will be conquered and pacified. And those who repent will be reconciled to him because Jesus has paid for the sin that has ravaged this world and from the sin that 
separates us from, from the Father. So he is the head, the firstborn, the reconciler. He is the Lord over his church. And so we look at that hymn in 15 and 20, and we see that Paul's really trying to communicate two different things. He's Lord over his creation. He's Lord over his church. And what Paul is doing to this church is he's painting a very, very, very big picture of Jesus. Now, if you drive east on I-70, you're going to pass a place called Goodman, Kansas. And in Goodman, Kansas, if it's a clear day, a nice day, and if you're looking, you got to be careful if you're driving, but if you're looking, you can see the world's largest easel. <laughs> Kansas has a lot of world's largest. They have like the world's largest ball of yarn. They have like weird stuff all along the highway if you're willing to take a little detour. But on that large easel, they have a giant Van Gogh painting. Now, I don't, it's not the world's largest Van Gogh, but it's pretty big, but it's the world's largest easel. But it's a very big picture painted of, of a Van Gogh painting. And what Paul is doing, he's, he's painting a very, very, very big picture of Jesus for the Colossian church to see. The question is, is like, why? Why? Paul is reminding them of who Jesus really is. You know, this, this church was probably hearing that Jesus wasn't that great. That Jesus wasn't capable of saving them. So you needed to look to these other things. You needed to look to these other spirits. You need to look to angels. We don't know the exact, uh, un, we don't know the exact heresy that was being preached. But the idea was, was Jesus wasn't enough and his salvation wasn't sufficient. And so Paul is reminding them of who Jesus is. And he's like, get that weak, small Jesus stuff out of here. Jesus is God. He is preexistent. He is preeminent. Everything was created through him. Everything is for him. He sustains all things, including those lesser gods, those spirits that your heretics try to get you to worship. He is more than qualified as the preexistent God, as God in flesh. He is more than qualified to save you. He is head of the church. He is the reconciler of all things. He was resurrected. He is the one who has the power to give resurrection life. The Jesus that you worship is not a small Jesus. And Paul wants them to stay true to this authentic, real version of Jesus because to stray from this understanding of Jesus will have consequences. That's what Paul says. Now, as a church, we want to be very careful to preach the, the authentic Jesus. We don't want to give you a knock-off Jesus. And there's, there's a temptation to do that because sometimes things that Jesus says or things that Jesus does, things that we find in Scripture, kind of hard to deal with. They're kind of hard to accept. And so it's very tempting as a pastor to kind of present like a diet Jesus. You know, he, he tastes like Jesus a little bit, but, but not all the calories. 
that the real Jesus has. But Paul's like, no, it's, it's important to hold on to that, that big picture of Jesus because that's the type of Jesus that saves you. And to stray from that, to shift your hope to something else, is, is a dangerous game to play. And, and that's how he ends it. So the hymn is now over, and Jesus is going to move to kind of application of that hymn. And so what he's going to do is he's going to restate the gospel, and then, he, then he's going to give a conditional clause. Look at verse 21. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Now underline if indeed. You continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Again, he restates the gospel, and then he gives a conditional statement that's very difficult to understand. And so he says, where there was alienation, hostility, and evil deeds, self-centered life that, that leads to brokenness all around you, through the blood of Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ's broken body, through taking on our sin, he has paid sin's penalty. So now there is reconciliation where there's alienation. There's now reconciliation. There's closeness. When we were hostile in mind, we've been given new hearts. And although we're not perfect, we desire to love God and follow him. And instead of a life marked by evil deeds, God is making us holy. And one day we will be presented as holy and blameless in front of the Father because of the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. That, that's, amen? Yeah, that's a big amen. But he says, if, if indeed you continue on, if indeed you press on, that's a pretty big if. We are reconciled, our sin has been paid for, if we put our faith in Jesus and persist in our belief that Jesus is Lord and his work on the cross was sufficient to pay for our sin. So Paul has praised them for beginning well. We talked about that last week. He praises this church for beginning well and for all the good things that God is, is doing in them. But now he's saying, keep this big vision of Jesus, this Jesus who saves you in front of you so that you may end well. Because ending well is important. Ending well is important. In fact, our salvation is dependent on it. And so I know this brings up all kinds of questions for you. Like what if somebody doesn't end well? What if somebody grew up in the church and and they did all the right things, and they walked to the altar, you know, they got baptized, they did all this stuff, and then they reject their faith. What do we do with that? And, and how do I, here's the other question, how do I make sure I end well? Because if you're in this room, unless your spouse is dragging you into this room, which that may be the case, hey, I'm glad you're here. But for most of us, we want to end well. And so how do I end well? Let's talk about that first question, because right now, 
It is so popular. It's like every month you see a prominent pastor or worship leader disown their faith. Have you guys seen that? Like in the news or publicly? It's like the popular thing to do. Hey, I'm a worship leader. I got a post about it on Facebook that the God I once worship is not the God I worship anymore. For all intents and purposes, I am no longer a Christian. I am an agnostic, an atheist. Like the 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 motive behind that is funny. To like make that you have to make that public, right? I need everybody to know that I'm no longer a Christian. But it happens over and over again. I, I quoted John Piper. His son, Barnabas Piper, is on TikTok right now, continually undermining what his father is doing. And he grew up in the church. And he went through those motions. And he did all of those things. And now he's about, you know, kind of destroying. He says, I don't, I don't care about Christianity. I just want to destroy evangelicalism. Or I just want to make fun of evangelicalism which his father's a prominent figure. Like, it's like just a popular thing to do. So what do you theologically do with those people? How do you as a pastor explain that? Can a person lose their salvation or take this gift they've been given and just throw it in the trash? Here's, here's what I would say. From God's point of view, if someone makes a true and genuine proclamation of faith, They believe in who Jesus is, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God. He lived a sinless life. He came and he paid for my sin. He rose again, conquering sin and death so that I could have life, so that I could be reconciled back to the Father. If you make a true proclamation of faith from God's point of view, they're renewed, reconciled, and transformed. They will persevere till the end. They will persevere till the end. Now, from a human perspective, we can discover whether someone's faith is of the genuine sort only by seeing patient perseverance in their life. They will press on in faith. They will finish well. And so if somebody walks away from their faith, the question that I have, and again, I am not judge jury, and executioner. I do not get to play who's Christian, who's not. That's not a game I like to play. Uh, but, but from a theological standpoint, you have to question whether that proclamation of faith was really genuine in the first place. And, and I'll talk about why here in a second. Now, this may cause you some fear. If you're like me, you're like, I don't, I don't want to lose my salvation. <laughs> You're like, oh, no, what, what, I don't want to commit the sin that God hates, and then I'm going to be in hell forever, and I'm going to be, like, you know, banging on the doors of heaven trying to get in. And like, A, if you've made a proclamation of faith and that's you, you're probably in a decent place. Like, most of these guys aren't, like, worried about the decisions they're making at that point. You've got to be worried about someone when they just don't care anymore. They just don't care anymore. So just by, by being somewhat anxious about that is some proof that the Holy Spirit's working in your life. Number two, we are told to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. So in, in one sense, pressing on, holding on to this picture of Jesus is a responsibility we have as believers, which I'll talk about that, that in a second. But right after Paul says that, In Philippians, he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He also tells us right after that, that God is working and willing in you 
according to his good pleasure. So think about that. The God who created and sustains the universe is the same God who established your faith and sustains your faith. And so there should be some hope there. The way this verb is kind of constructed to, if indeed you press on, Paul has the expectation that this church is going to press on. That this church is going to continue in steadfastness with their hope fixed on the gospel of truth. Here's the last part. And we'll kind of close on this is, people there, the people who press on, they do certain things. And so yes, it is God working and willing in us, but in my life, at least the people who I see finishing well or sustaining their faith, they do, they do a few things, they're about a few things, they commit to a few fundamental things. And, and here's the first one, to press on, you need people. <laughs> you need people. The wisdom of God, the love of God, the patience of God, the mercy of God, is often communicated through other people. And so if you isolate yourself from one of the primary ways that God works to, to sanctify you, to encourage you, to challenge you, your hope is going to easily shift to something else. Furthermore, people who press on, they're willing to look at their own life and, and crush their idols. What are we made for? Worship. We're all made for worship. So it's not a question of do we worship, it's a question of what do we worship. And so we can easily worship things that we weren't created to worship, like success, comfort, instability, uh, fun, enjoyment, you know, our kids. And, and all those things aren't bad, but they're bad when they become the ultimate thing in our life. And so people who press on are willing to look at their own heart and say, what am I worshiping that isn't Jesus? Because to worship something else, you're, you're going to find your faith will destabilize. Your faith in Christ will destabilize. Here's the last part. Read God's word. Be about God's word. A lot of these guys, women and men, who are walking away from their faith, I think, they were worshiping a Jesus of their own creation. It was a Jesus impersonator. It was a Jesus imposter. And I think they were worshiping a, a fake Jesus that they created. And so when that Jesus came up against the, the Jesus we actually find in Scripture, there were contradictions. There was friction. And then, then that turned into frustration. And then at some point, their foundation was destroyed. And at some point, their hope shifted because they weren't really worshiping Jesus in the first place. That, that, that foundation was of sand, not something solid. Their hope was in something that wasn't real. So spend time with the real Jesus. Open your heart to the word of truth and continually embrace the reality that Jesus is Lord, Lord of all creation, Lord of his church, and author of salvation. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.